0: So let's think through clearly what the Bible teaches. It says, woe to those who call evil good. Hmm. And what we must do is to stand against it and say we will not bow to the pressures of this culture. That's Dr. Erwin Lutzer
1: sharing some encouragement for believers. Who are feeling lost in a culture filled with anger and polarization. He'll help to familiarize you with the term cultural socialism, and I think you'll find the conversation to be really insightful. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I love sharing these deeper conversations with you on the podcast because I know that many Christians are feeling discouraged in a world that's so divided on the issue of truth. What is truth anymore, and how can we speak about what the Bible says in this culture? And here's the bottom line. God's truth will not be covered up for too long. It keeps emerging in the form of common grace, God's natural law. Truth is truth. And you know what? You could try to build a building over it, but truth will break through and crack that foundation. And that is why we keep coming back to the same old lies, the same old paradigms that human beings come up with that don't stack up against God's truth. On this episode of Refocus, Dr. Lutzer will share about cancel culture, the value of freedom of speech, critical race theory, and the sexual, I'd like to say, derevolution. I know these are heavy topics, but as you listen, remember, all is not lost as long as we live authentically as Christians and practice showing others the radical love of Christ, and yes, the truth. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is pastor emeritus of the Moody Church in Chicago, where he served as senior pastor for 36 years. And one of his books is called We Will Not Be Silenced, which is a big part of our discussion. Here's that conversation on Refocus with Jim Daly. Let's get to it. Uh, Many Americans and Christians are deeply disturbed by what's happening in our culture today, and it may feel like it's happened overnight. But in your book, we've actually seen and you depict that these degradations of the Judeo-Christian value system have been
0: chipped away at for decades. Explain that. Well, it's really true that there are a number of streams that have flowed into our culture. But I would say, Jim, that I think in the last years, we've seen a tremendous acceleration of these streams. But the one that I begin with and I want people to understand is cultural Marxism. You know, cultural Marxism differs from classical Marxism. Classical Marxism emphasized the fact of economics and the state was to become God in effect and there was to be a revolution. Cultural Marxism says we can achieve the same ends incrementally. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? First of all, it means the supremacy of the state. And once you have the supremacy of the state, you, of course, begin to take away human freedom because humans don't want to criticize the state that they're dependent upon. But what we must understand is that Karl Marx believed that the family was a unit of oppression that had to be overthrown. Mm. You see, his whole theory of history was based on oppression. The bourgeoisie, they oppressed the proletariat, and so you transfer this, and of course we'll see how it's transferred also to racial issues. But he believed that the family was a unit of oppression. Men oppressed their wives, parents oppressed their children, they took them to church. God was the ultimate oppressor, of course. And therefore, the authority of God had to be overthrown. So what was his answer? He said very explicitly that it was to exploit the relationships within the family, but in effect to destroy them, to exploit children for his point of view. And uh, therefore, women should work outside the home because they should become a part of the means of production. And also, the children should be educated by the state so that the children could be properly informed regarding the evils of creationism and God and the Bible and church and so forth. So, this was his vision. What we must understand is that oppression does exist. There's no question about it. But Marx made a tremendously great error when he suggested that all bad behavior is because of oppression. Just remove the oppression and it will be all gone, and people are going to live together in harmony. Right, and that really misses
1: the nature of of human beings, right? Our heart, the sin nature, because that's not what we do typically. We, because of greed and other things, we tend to move toward those things that make us more comfortable, happier, etc. And uh, that's where he ultimately, I think, misses the understanding of human nature.
0: What I do in my book, Jim, is I try to show people that back behind a lot of things, whether or not you're talking about race or you're talking about government, cultural Marxism is in the background. And the reason that it's important for people to understand that is to see the connectedness of events and what's happening. I want people to understand that critical race theory and the idea of defunding the police, for example, are related. Because it gets back to this idea of oppression. You know, the police are oppressive. If we take away the police, everybody's going to live in harmony. Open the jails, because jails are oppressive. So, what you have in society is an application of Marxism, and many people might not realize it. And so, there is an interrelation. As we talk about it, I hope we get to freedom of speech and such things as propaganda that I discuss in the book. You outlined in your book, uh, for example, that the women's movement uh, has
1: done a lot of damage. It also brought about some needed change as well. Um, Expand on that a bit. How has the women's movement and feminism
0: played both a good and a bad role? Well, of course, it played a bad role when you think of Margaret Sanger and what she believed.
1: How and that describe w- that
0: for the listener who well, doesn't know. Well, uh, the point is she emphasized that women should not obey their husbands, that they were actually being servants and submissive and slaves to their husband. She wanted contraception so that women would be totally free. And this is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Yes. Yeah. Now, that's all the negative side, and it led to a lot of things regarding our whole sexualized culture. Eventually, as the sock became unraveled, so to speak, It led to some very bad places. On the other hand, it was absolutely essential that women be elevated in society, that they be able to vote. And we see many good things today in the women's movement. Of course, I think that we would all agree that there should be equal pay for equal position and equal work. All that also was brought about. So you have some good things, but you also have some very detrimental things all happening because of the women's movement. Yeah. In fact, Dr. Lutzer, uh, we did a project here, the Family Project. It was a film
1: series uh, that reinforced those things. And there was a woman who had a powerful testimony. She was a feminist, Frederica Green, And she made a statement, and the paraphrase was this, that through the feminist movement, they were hoping for acceptance. But with
0: abortion and other things, they got abandonment. Isn't that that powerful? That's a very interesting observation. So sometimes you have the law of unintended consequences. Right. Men were no longer responsible for the product of conception. A baby. Uh, (laughs) Yes. That, of course, is true. And... uh, we're living at a time when supposedly men can have babies. So what yeah, you have, I mean is total confusion in the right. culture regarding these sexual
1: issues. Well, in broadly speaking, as we peel this onion, uh, we're seeing a revolution in America. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's a slow-grinding revolution that you mentioned in your book that seeks to rewrite history and discard the Judeo-Christian values that really did make the nation. and. It's what the founders uh, founded this nation upon. How would you describe that movement in a wake-up call for the church to say that a revolution is underway?
0: We've kind of been asleep at the switch. Well, I think after the death of George Floyd, many of the uh, demonstrations were about racism. And Jim, you and I might disagree about this, but I think that they transitioned from issues of racism to issues of revolution, And that, of course, becomes very important where you have the destruction of our monuments, but more seriously even, you have the destruction and the vilification of American history. Now, every regime that wants to revolutionize has to destroy that which has come in the past. Arthur Schlesinger, who is one of the confidants of President Kennedy, said on one occasion that history is to a nation what memory is to a person. Now, if a person loses his memory, he becomes whatever people say he is. And what you have being taught in our universities today is that America began with some evil men with evil motives, and so the issues of our supposed Judeo-Christian inheritance have to be destroyed. And, of course, it's destroyed because of racism. And all of us remember, and certainly we emphasize the fact that slavery was horrible, It was so horrible that it ought to bring tears to everyone's eyes. But there's also some good things that should be said about America. And what we should do is to emphasize how far we have come in living up to our ideals. But it would be wrong for us to simply say, oh, we have to begin again. Now, I'm old enough to remember when St. Petersburg was actually called Leningrad and then Stalingrad What you want to do is to vilify the past so that you can build a new future. And the whole idea of the radical left is to say that at the end of this revolution, on the other side, there'll be an end to racism, an end to white supremacy, income inequality, and we're going to bring in that socialistic Marxist ideal. Yeah, and and the reality
1: is, and I've seen it, I've traveled to 70 countries roughly. Uh, on behalf of Focus, I was in Russia when Gorbachev was taken in the coup. I was actually there setting up a trip for Dr. Dobson and others to come to the country and and meet heads of state, et cetera. And in that context, it's a failed system. I mean, when you talk to the people, the idea that Marxism or communism can deliver what people need. It it just does not. And everywhere around the globe, you see that, Dr. Lutzer, whether that's Venezuela or whatever. It it just does not meet the needs of the people to uh, bring the means of production and allow them uh, products and goods that actually work. I remember being there and, you know, you had to wait seven years for a car. And when you got the car, it barely ran. Um, It's a ridiculous system. And, you know, I don't know why in the United States, when we look at this Why would we want to be the last one in the ring of nations that will potentially go through this embrace of communism or socialism or some form of it? I mean, what clownish activity. I mean, you have Europe already gone through it. Most of Eastern Europe has rejected it. Russia's rejected it. To me, it's just buffoonery that the United
0: States in the 21st century would say, oh, we need to try this. Socialism appears to be a winner. I mean, free college, free this, free that. It seems as if this is the way to go. The problem is, as Margaret Thatcher so accurately said, that the problem with socialism is pretty soon you run out of other people's money. What people need to realize in a socialist society and in a communist society, the money that you own or the money that you earn is not your own. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the state so that it can be dished out in accordance with equity and equality. Right. That's why socialists always talk about how wealth can be distributed. They never talk about how it can be created because socialism cannot create wealth. The only way socialism can survive is by a government that prints money to keep the ship afloat. So we must recognize that it is doomed to fail. But my, it appears to be so good. Yeah, the the promises are big, but the delivery is thin. It is an impossible delivery, actually.
1: Um, How would you suggest that people view history in a more balanced way? I I mean, what you're saying and what the other side, if I could say it in those terms, what those who embrace socialism or communism are suggesting is that, the current system's really bad. There's always going to be bad in every system. We're imperfect people. And I think even with the founders, when you look at it, of course they were imperfect people. They were human beings. They got some things wrong. Slavery is at the top of the list. But the irony of that, when uh, I had a a, a person suggest to me, when you look at it, slavery did not start in the United States. It was global. It went on for about 3,000 years before the United States was ever created. But the genius of what they created in the Constitution, and I think they, they knew this, but they knew they could not achieve it at the time. That's my supposition. But it only took 90 years to get to Abraham Lincoln from the, the writing of the Constitution. That's impressive. They took a 3,000-year um, horrific industry and recognized it, probably for political reasons. They could not solve it in their day, but they set the groundwork up through
0: the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to end it in 90 years. That's impressive. And to underline what you have just said, today in the world there are about 40 million slaves primarily in Africa and in India. Now, one of the things that you will find, like the 1619 Project, for example, they will never compare America to another country. Because if you ever compare America to another country, America is going to come off looking pretty good. You can't get people to hate America if you compare America with other countries. So what you do is you look at the way in which America has missed its ideals, and of course it has because we are fallen. But, you know, I point out in the book that that's really true of human beings as well. Martin Luther translates the Bible into German, but at the same time writes horrible things against the Jews. And so human beings are very complex and countries are very complex. And what we must do is to have a balanced view of history, to your point, Namely, let's look at slavery, let's look at the horror, but also let's look at how far we have come. Let's look at the fact that America is indeed, I think, one of the supreme nations in the world. By the way, Jim, I don't know if you know this, but I was born and raised in Canada. So I am an American citizen today. I am naturalized and I love America and I want to stand for America. But of course, There's a lot of room for growth. There's a lot of room for change. We aren't where we should be, but we're on our way. And to vilify the past that somehow what you can do is now to build this brand new future is foolishness. And as you pointed out, it's been tried many times, and it simply does not work. Yeah, let me, let me read a quote
1: uh, from one of the founders, John Adams, because, again, I think people fail to know history, and therefore we repeat the mistakes of the past, right? And John Adams had a wonderful quote, especially for those of us of faith. He said, our Constitution was made only— for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. I mean, that's quite a statement. So democracy, he's basically saying, is set up in the United States um, in a functional way and that moral and religious people
0: need to be present for democracy to exist and thrive. Because the assumption was that as long as you give people freedom, we hope that they are going to act within certain boundaries. Well, honesty. With honesty (laughs) and without even government intervention. The less you trust people, the more laws you're going to have, the more oppressive the government is going to be. So that becomes very important. Uh, Moving to the First Amendment, let me ask you about this. Uh, The First Amendment provides
1: for freedom of speech and uh, religion. Uh, seems to be in jeopardy today, even though it's right there. So the very things that are plainly written as protected freedoms for us are now in jeopardy. Uh, What's the strategy in the current revolution as they begin to chip away at those Judeo-Christian values to try and
0: cancel or silence opposing views? I find this very interesting because in 1977, my wife and I lived in Skokie, one of the suburbs of Chicago, and the neo-Nazis came to the suburb to demonstrate. Now, you must understand that this was an area which uh, there were many Jews living, people who had survived Hitler's concentration camps. So there was a lot of uh, interest. There was a lot of opposition. But in those days, Jim, those were different days, the ACLU said no matter how offensive the speech is, freedom of speech means freedom of speech. Now, let's find out what's happening today. In the 60s, there was a Marxist by the name of Marcuse. Marcuse oftentimes is uh, the way in which his name is simply pronounced. And he was committed to Marxism. But he says this, as long as we have freedom of speech, the capitalists are going to take advantage of it. (laughs) And uh, as a result, they're going to win the debate. So there's only one way that socialism, communism can thrive. And that is if we shut down freedom of speech. And here again, this is why Marxism is so important for us to understand. What he was saying is, that it is time for the oppressed to speak and the oppressors, namely the capitalists, should be quiet. So, what you have today in our universities is the idea that only those who are oppressed should have freedom to speak. If you're a conservative, you're an oppressor and you should be silent and you should simply listen. And by the way, if we hear something that offends us, We have to retreat into a safe place so that we can lick the wounds of our unappreciated victimhood. So what you have, and in the book I quote Stanley Fish, who says unapologetically, a double standard has to be called for. It is time for the oppressors to be quiet. The oppressed must speak. And that's why there are so many limitations today regarding freedom of speech. And what's interesting to me is this. When a conservative wants to speak at a university and then it is discovered that he can't because of riots and so forth, the university always comes up with a statement that says something like this. We believe in freedom of speech. It is very important, but... And then what follows is all the reasons why they really don't believe in freedom of speech after all. Yeah, something like the safety of the students is paramount,
1: and therefore this is too Or there uh,
0: is harm that comes to the students.
1: Well, in that regard, let me ask you about this. It's something that has swirled around in my mind for quite some time. I remember visiting China and um, talking to Christians in China and hearing their heart about uh, the one child policy, which thankfully the Chinese government has begun to relax that policy, and that's a step in the right direction. But there was this top down understanding the man is oppressing us, the government. And I think by and large, uh, you know, the Chinese people generally saw it as that that, you know, this is what government's doing to oppress us, that we can only have one child, etc. So it had that groundswell of discontent, if I could say it that way. The concern I have in in the United States is that shaming that you're talking about, the silencing of people that have a contrary opinion, that they have socialized that. And I think that's far more dangerous because it's not coming from the man. It's not coming top down where we could agree the government is being heavy handed It's coming from neighbors, from other people in the community that you can't speak out because you're saying things that offend
0: them. Uh, It's quite different, I think. And, you know, these speech codes in the university, they are not intended to elevate the debate. They are actually intended to silence the debate. You don't know what you can say or what you can't say. I point out that many students in our universities, Christian students, they will not be talked out of their faith, but they will be mocked out of their faith. And because of the shaming that goes on that you referred to, as a result of that, oftentimes you have this self-censoring attitude where you just retreat into silence. Which is a victory for the other side, really. And you know... In my book, in every chapter, you might recognize this, I always at the end talk about the response of the church because that's really where my heart is ultimately. What is the role of the church in the midst of a collapsing culture? And I point out how necessary it is for us to be able to speak in a culture in which the person who shouts the loudest wins the argument. We don't shout, but we do have to speak And what we have to do is to be willing to take the consequences. Here in America, we're not used to that. We always think that we should be able to speak and everyone should be tolerant. But today, the issue is not tolerance. It's dominance by the radical left. But it's wrapped in that label of tolerance. Yes, of course. So the, the the ones that are asking for tolerance have become the most intolerant. Well, we just talked about some writers, you know, who deny that we should have freedom of speech. But, you know, they did use freedom of speech to write their books about it. And so what you always have is this contradiction in these kinds of theories. You know, uh, Dr. Lutzer, it's
1: so good uh, to, you know, openly talk about this. I'm sure some people are going to be offended by us. But uh, let me continue with the questions. When you look at the radical left, uh, they believe it's, uh, you know, that their actions, that their direction is actually protecting people from harm by labeling others as hateful, racist, or sexist, as you said. How could people be so blind to not understand what it is they're doing? It seems so obvious to us what's going on now. It's
0: right out there on display in Town Square, but they don't see it in themselves. I think that you put it very well. You know, Churchill is quoted as saying, the desire to believe something is much more compelling than rational arguments. So what you have is today a desire-driven culture. I desire something, and so I turn away from rationality, from argumentation, from discussion, and I go ahead with what I want to believe. And that's, of course, exactly what is happening, where there is a willful blindness To the fact that you are living with a contradiction, that you are doing what you are denying that others should do, and people just don't realize it.
1: Yeah, and you know, I want to get down to some practical examples. This has been hopefully interesting to people, but it's impacting Christians on the ground. Uh, You have an example in the book uh, about a church in Missouri called The Crossing. And there are
0: many, many examples, but let's talk about that one. What happened? I'm very glad to talk about that one because I have some firsthand knowledge about it. A pastor preached a message on transgenderism. He was very differential. He mentioned the fact that there are some of you who may be confused about your gender, and we welcome you to Christ. Talk to us. We're here to help you. To encourage you, but at the end of the day genesis one twenty seven says that he created them male and female. all right, just a standard message that ten years ago right. could have been preached in any evangelical Absolutely. church, yeah, that night, they were on the news, they were vilified in the newspaper. This church had raised over $400,000 to pay off hospital bills for people who couldn't afford it. In the community. In the community, they were very actively involved. And now suddenly people began to withdraw. There was a petition because the church was involved in some ministry, and they said that you can't be involved anymore. And pretty soon there were a thousand signatures against the church and so forth. You know, Jim, I just want to share my heart here. Throughout the years, I was always told, oh, the church needs to make sure that it is known for what it is for and not for what it is against. Mm -hmm. Well, that's wonderful. But the fact is that if you are against something, like same-sex marriage, for example, if you're against something, all the things that you are for fall by the wayside. Now, this issue becomes paramount, and you are vilified for what you believe. So, pastors need to walk a very fine line here. On the one hand, we have to be welcoming, but we cannot be affirming. But we always have to make sure that people who come to our churches are invited to Christ. They are invited to help. But at the same time, we have to draw the line and say, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Let me give you an example. In Chicago, a public school teacher told me, he was told, it is not enough for you to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. If you don't celebrate it, you could lose your job. Now, that's a line in the sand. He can say, you know, to some extent, I can tolerate it, but I cannot celebrate what God has condemned. So, let's think through clearly what the Bible teaches it says, woe to those who call evil good. And that's what's happening in our culture. Exactly But that's right. only half the story. Mm-hmm. They are not finished until they take that which is good and call it evil. Then the revolution is complete. And that's where we are today in America, where that which is good is being called evil. Mm. And what we must do is to stand against it and say, we will not bow to the pressures of this culture. The family seems under attack in a lot of different ways. Uh, I talked to
1: my good friend, uh, Senator James Lankford from Oklahoma, and he just said, Jim, here's my experience. He's coming out of being a youth pastor and became a senator, and think of that. And uh, I asked him, what is going on with government and family? He said, here's the bottom line. The government needs family to become weaker because when the family is weaker, government, out of necessity, has to become stronger. Speak to that reality. That is such a profound thought. It's dead on, right? Because exactly, of, uh, welfare and taking care of people, the government ends up playing the bigger role of provision and kind of decimating
0: the role of uh, the man, right? And what's important to understand is the more control we give to the government, the less freedoms we have. The more we are submissive to the government, and you're absolutely right that when the family breaks apart, then, of course, you have government control and government steps in. That is a profound quote. Yeah. I want to mention critical race theory because it is so prevalent in our society and there's so much talk about it.
1: Well, let me just say, too, for those that aren't paying attention, I mean, this is in the news almost every night through school boards and other things where moms, God bless them are really standing up at these school board meetings saying, we're not going to allow
0: this in our school district. And it's creating a lot of tension. And you know what's encouraging is the fact that you have so many moms who are standing up, and there are others who are standing up with and them. And dads because too. But they're wow. looking for somebody with the courage to finally say what is on their own minds, and then they join and they begin to talk together about these important things. All right, now. Let me, can,
1: I, can yeah. I add this just so you can define it for me? Uh, many people who are critics of critical race theory are saying this is a typical ploy of Marxism, of communism. Connect those dots for me. Is it that old, a, a strategy, an ideology?
0: All right, let's think about Karl Marx. He is dividing people into the oppressed and into the oppressors, and he's looking at it primarily economically. What happened is there's a man in Chicago by the name of Saul Alinsky, a worker there, a community organizer who was a Marxist, who said, you know what? We can take the very same theory and we can apply it to race. I talked to somebody who worked with Alinsky in Chicago, and he said that he was not interested in solving problems. He always said, don't solve problems, use them. And he saw that he could begin to huh. bring conflict to the races without any hope of reconciliation. So let's talk about oppression. The whole idea is that if you are white-skinned, you're an oppressor. And it's so important to realize that many people believe, therefore, that you can be born in the poorest area of America, you can be brought up, but you're still an oppressor if you are white. If you are oppressed, you're black, and even LeBron James, who may be earning millions of dollars a year, he is not a person of privilege because, after all, he has a different colored skin. So here's the point: what you want to do is to divide the races. Of course, we know that ultimately there's only one race. God says that He made all of us of one blood, and that becomes very important for the church. So let's set that aside for just a moment. But the idea is to set up this conflict where one side blames the other and, of course, imagine what this means to children going to school. Children have hopes and dreams for themselves and then they are told, you know, the reason you can achieve is because of the fact of the color of your skin. Now, you can take a family with four children And if you give them freedom, one of them is going to earn a lot more money than the other three combined, if there's freedom. But critical race theory says the reason that you are successful is because you are a person of privilege. Now, I want to make it very clear. The intention is not to bring about any kind of reconciliation, but rather to create endless conflict until the oppressed overcome the oppressors. And so the conflict must continue. And you know, you have, you mentioned moms a moment ago. I remember one mother who, because of her interracial marriage, had a white child and a black child, and they started to argue with one another. Because remember, the whole point is conflict. Now, Christianity has an answer for this, and I have to get to this, Jim, because we're interested in the church, right? Right. Christianity says the differences between us are not that great. After all, we are all created equal in God's sight of total equal value. We are equally sinners. We come to the foot of the cross. We receive forgiveness. And then we ask ourselves, what can we do together to make things better? Now, I was pastor of Moody Church in Chicago for 36 years, and on any Sunday morning, we had more than 70 countries of origin represented, and we delighted in that because in the book of Revelation, it says that there are going to be people from every race and color and nation. We're all going to be at the throne. Let me put it as clearly as I possibly can. Critical race theory keeps tearing apart what Jesus Christ died to bring together, huh. and Christianity says we really don't have a skin problem; we have a sin problem. Right, and once we identify that, there is hope for reconciliation. There is hope for forgiveness. There's hope for working together so that we can rectify what's happening in our communities so that we can represent Christ better. But we cannot solve the racial problem as long as we are shouting at one another across racial fences. Dr. Lutzer, let me ask the obvious question, and this is out of my own experience.
1: Uh, You know, when I was third and fourth grade, we lived in Compton, California. My mom had remarried. They were trying to scratch money together to rent a, a home in Long Beach so we lived in that very poor neighborhood and um, so I experienced coming from that kind of uh, elementary school environment and I want to make sure that people are hearing the heart of this when we look at the church's role and responsibility there does need to be humility there does need to be recognition
0: that it's hard
1: to climb out of poverty you've got to be the first in your family to go to college you've got to have opportunity and I think it's fair to ask that question all systems are imperfect because the systems on this earth in this time before Christ returns are imperfect because we are imperfect people. So in that regard, I think it gets down to you know how can we in the church have done and in the future do a better job of helping people from poverty into opportunity in a country that like no other has provided for a middle class, for... Uh, families to live uh, comfortably, to get uh, things done that they want to get done, to start businesses, to pay for braces, to pay for college. Um, You know, how how does the church play a
0: role in that? You know, if you come to Chicago, I think you will find many churches that are impacting their neighborhood. Perhaps many of them are doing it in different ways. Absolutely equal opportunity should be on the top of our agenda. As a church— Whatever influence we can have in government, equal opportunity is absolutely essential to the extent that you can. And as you've already emphasized, because we are sinners, we always fail, but we do the best that we can. Beyond that, of course, there are many different kind of incentives to help people get out of poverty. And what we must do is to recognize that whatever we can do should be done together Government cannot do a very good job, by the way, because uh, of various reasons that we could talk about. So the church needs to get beyond its walls, reaching out to the community, and ask these important questions, how can we do better in the very issues that you have described?
1: Yeah. Um, let's hit the issue of propaganda because that, you know, it seems every night we're having that battle on cable news stations, right? Um, left, right and center, there just seems to be a lot of what the I think the Bible calls prevarication, a little bit of spin. It's not pure untruth, but it's definitely spin. And uh, how do we recognize propaganda and what is
0: it trying to accomplish in the culture? First of all, we must recognize that the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality so that even when faced with a mountain of evidence, they will not change their minds. So what we must do in propaganda, and you're absolutely right, the right does it, the left does it, all politicians do it to some extent or another, propaganda. First of all, we must recognize that slogans are used oftentimes to mask evil. For example, when Hitler starved children, he called it putting them on a low-calorie diet. When the Jews were put into the concentration camps, he called it cleansing the land. So what you do, what propagandists do, if I might put it as clearly as I can in a single sentence, they tell you what you want to hear But they give you what they want you to have. Let's take even the word social justice. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be involved in social justice and interested in social justice. But it's a term that is defined very differently in different contexts. So we must be very careful how we define the word. Two other words that are misused in our society are words such as equality. So you have marriage equality. You have income equality, which all of us know as socialism. You have reproductive equality, which is abortion. So good words are used, but behind those words, there is a very specific agenda. So I tell people this, that when it comes to propaganda, look at the label on the package— But then open the package and see what's inside, because you will often discover that what is inside is very different than the label. The other thing that is needed for propaganda is fear. You need an enemy. Somebody always has to be vilified so that you can stir up people's anger. You know, Hitler, of course, made the statement that with the right use of propaganda, you can make heaven appear like hell and hell appear like heaven. And so that's the way propaganda works. So we always must be aware of the fact and ask ourselves, what's in the box?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's such a good reminder. Uh, We did touch on Marxism and socialism, but I want to come back to that. Explain how socialism and communism also damages our religious freedoms and thereby other freedoms, because religious freedom tends to be at the core of human conscience, You know, let me live as I deem fit. And they're saying, no, you can't do that any longer.
0: Socialism, we must emphasize, always is a failed system because it has a misreading of human nature. Okay. So what you are told in a socialistic society is you are working for the government. The money doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the government. Neither do your children, by the way. Yes. That's right. And what happens is the government distributes it as it wishes, okay? So what you have is an allegiance to the government. What this means is it stifles creativity. In my book, I talk about a kibbutz in Israel that was going to be run according to socialistic principles, and uh, people so misused the system that somebody said it became a paradise for parasites, So people took advantage of the system. But what it does then is it stifles not only creativity but freedom of speech because you don't want to criticize the hand that feeds you. Because in a Marxist world, in a truly Marxist world, you don't even have the right to criticize the government unless the government gives you that right because you have no natural rights given to you by God. They are government-directed rights, And as a result of that, you have a squashing of freedom of religion because you cannot have allegiance to a higher power than government. In effect, government becomes God. Correct, and tells you what your rights are, which is exactly
1: opposite of what the founding fathers were describing that these are inalienable rights that come
0: from God, not from government. Jim, I've heard that so many times, and only recently did I really understand its significance. We take that for granted. Yeah, That is profound, because in other countries, and when you look at the history of the Christian church and the persecution that has taken place, by the way, you know that it is possible to be faithful without freedom of religion. Just look at church history, look at all of the martyrs who have died for their faith. But we must recognize that we have something special, that we have rights given to us by God and not just rights given to us by the state. Absolutely transforming. Yeah, and again, that's another reason to persevere and
1: to try to, uh, I think, recapture these truths, these fundamental principles and freedoms.
0: You know, people might ask, why is it that a pastor who writes a book entitled, We Will Not Be Silenced, why a chapter on socialism? The reason is because of this. Capitalism has allowed Americans to give $400 billion a year to charity. Now, name any socialist country that can do anything even near that. It can't because, as we like to emphasize, socialism cannot create wealth. It can only distribute it. Right. You know, I've been in Russia, too, and I remember sleeping in this hotel, and uh, I think— It cost a million rubles back in the 1980s, you know, because the government was just printing money, taking away the decimal points and all that other stuff. Why? Because it cannot create wealth. If you're going to have the creation of wealth, you need human freedom. And in a socialistic world, it's like a caste system. Once you are put into a certain line and you're given a certain salary, you stay there. For example, I remember when we were there, doctors in the hospital got paid very little more than other workers in the hospital. Well, is it any wonder that there was a dearth of doctors in the Soviet Union? Of course not. You cannot run a vibrant economy on a socialistic scale. Yeah, Uh, another more recent example
1: even is Venezuela, and that's right in our hemisphere, so to speak. Describe what's happened with Venezuela. They were robust, they were doing well in a free market economy, and then bang.
0: This is so important. Socialism can work for a little while as long as the government has money, but when the government runs out of money, of course, socialism then ends this great paradise. I like the words of Churchill. Churchill said you know the great vice of capitalism is the unequal distribution of blessings the great benefit of socialism is the equal distribution of misery yeah that's, that's the true. way he put it and uh, once uh, once the country ran out of money all of the benefits and all of the blessings suddenly ended how do countries go bankrupt gradually and then suddenly Yeah. uh, It's so well
1: said. Uh, Let's get back to the church's response. Um, The bottom line is, the church, it's not unique, the circumstances that we're in. I mean, it goes back to the Roman Empire. Jesus was a part of the Roman Empire. He lived during that time. Uh, You know, Christianity in many ways dismantled the Roman Empire because of the way the believers behaved Uh, People wanted to become Christians because it was so good. Um, How do we stand today in this environment and remember those that have gone before us centuries ago
0: and the church is still here? Are we going to make it? Well, that's an interesting question. Are we going to make it? One of the points I like to make in the book is that ultimately the Church of Jesus Christ is not even built on the American Constitution, though it's a remarkable document, the church of Jesus Christ is built on Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So in that sense, yes, the church will make it. But to your point about persecution, a woman at Moody Church came to me one time and said, you know, I've been fired from my job because of my integrity. I was not willing to go along with company policy And I looked her in the eye, and I hope I didn't appear to be insensitive because I want to talk about that in a moment too. But I said, you know, Jesus had something to say about that. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, for great will be your reward in heaven. Now, here's the question, Jim, because we're talking about the church. A woman fired because of faithfulness. Is the church going to come around and say, we're going to help you through this? You know, one of the things that we're going to have to learn in the midst of a collapsing culture is we can't go it alone. She is going to need money to pay her bills. She is going to need money and help to continue. So my view of the church is this. We need to think through what church is all about. It isn't just doing the media thing like many churches have. It is relationships. It is sacrifice one person for another so that we are able to get through these difficulties. The other thing is, and this is to your point directly, we need to rethink the whole business of persecution. The average American Christian thinks this. If the church were all that it should be we would be able to continue to coast along with our wealth and with our pursuit of riches and sail through life and live the good American dream without any opposition. That has not been the experience of Christians throughout history. Right from the beginning all the way through, as you so accurately Mm -hmm. pointed out. Let's even go to medieval times when Luther made his statement, I will not recant. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. He was supposed to be put to death the next day. Now, he wasn't because of some interesting reasons. But the point is, there was no freedom of religion in those days. And then you go up through even the enlightenment, there were struggles regarding freedom of religion. What we have in America is unique. If you look at it historically, it is an anomaly. This is not what the church had. And so we're going to have to go back and rethink the whole business of what it means to live for Christ and take the consequences. Wasn't it Bonhoeffer who said, you know, this idea of taking the cross into the world sounds very wonderful until you realize where the cross took Jesus, namely to Golgotha yeah so we're going to have to think through what faithfulness to christ means you also uh, mention in the book that
1: the modern church looks a lot like sardis the church of sardis in scripture describe
0: sardis and what are the similarities jim this is critical i've been to sardis and you know there are no churches in sardis there are only mosques but here's the most interesting thing there are temples to pagan gods And right up against those temples, a church was built, more than one church. Now, that's a 3rd or 4th century church. It doesn't go back to the time of Christ. But remember what Christ said to the church, strengthen what remains. But let's look at that for a moment. How should we interpret that? One way is to say that the church wanted to be where life was the darkest so that we can witness to these pagans. The other way, which is probably correct, is that the church felt comfortable next to the pagan temples. You could worship in church, and then you could go to pagan temples with all of their sexuality, and you could enjoy both worlds. Hmm. Jesus, when he spoke to the church and said, strengthen what remains, I believe that he was speaking to a church that no longer saw the world as an enemy. It had bought into the world, And so, in that last chapter, by the way, I talk about what Jesus might say to the church today regarding the gospel itself, which oftentimes is being eclipsed by social justice issues. I talk about sexuality and how we are submitting to the world's view of sexuality, and even the world and technology. But this is so encouraging. Even in this church, which Jesus said, you know, you have a reputation of being alive, but actually you're dead. What does he say in the letter? He said, but there are some of you in Sardis who have not spoiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in light, for they are worthy. Isn't that beautiful, Mm -hmm. Jim? Mm -hmm. What he's saying is in the midst of a church which has lost its way and a church that is being more influenced by the culture than influencing the culture, there are still some faithful Christians who have not bowed to the contemporary uh, worldview. And that is a challenge that I want to leave with your listeners. The fact that you and I are called to be faithful, even if the church that we are in isn't everything that it should be, after all, what church is, Correct. but still individually and as families, what we must do is to say that we will not bow to the culture. And people are always asking me, what does that mean? And my answer, Jim, and you may agree or disagree, is always this. It depends on who you are. The mother who is at home there with her children, faithfulness to Christ means one thing. The businessman, faithfulness to Christ for him means something else. It means that he cannot go along with some company policies oftentimes. The teacher in the school, I had a teacher ask me this. He said, you know, I'm in this school, and we have a boy who was born a boy, and his name was Bert. Now he comes to school, and he wants to be known as Bertha. And then he said, the principal told me that when parents come for their parent-teacher meeting, we cannot tell his parents that when he comes to school, he's a girl. That's a line in the sand. Mm. He said, I cannot live with that kind of deception. What is my point? When you ask what faithfulness to Jesus Christ means, every person has to answer that question differently. But answer it, we must. Well, I think, Dr. Lutzer, this is you know a good place to land, and I want to
1: cover a couple things really quick. Um, one is those illustrations are happening every day, and the church may or may not be aware of it right now, whether it's uh, the florist up in Seattle, the baker just up here in Denver, uh, the teacher that so closely describes what you're talking about, the, the coach and teacher who drew a line in the sand on gender identity, and now he's been fired. Um It is happening. And I want to read Romans 5 because I think the word of God is what is paramount, right? Mm -hmm. And get your response to this. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's a great setup. And here's where it takes us. Verse three says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's a powerful scripture about what it means to suffer and what the byproduct of suffering is about.
0: But we like comfort and convenience. Oh, we don't want to suffer. You know, you're (laughs) reading from Romans chapter 5, here's a promise given by Jesus. Everybody says, let's claim the promises. Okay, here's a promise. John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you shall have tribulation. There's a promise for you to hang on to and one that comes to pass. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." The fact is this, look through church history, look at the people who we consider to be heroes. They all suffered, but they suffered well. Quick illustration, I was in East Germany, which was under communist control for many years, as you well know. A pastor told me that when there was communism, about 15% of the Christians were faithful, The rest weren't, because the communists said, if you continue to attend church, you are going to be marginalized, and your children won't be able to go to school. Let's look at those 15%, though, who still did not bow to communism. Mm. Jim, let's look at it from the big picture, eternity. Mm -hmm. Who made the right decision? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the bottom line.
1: And I think the last question that we really need to cover is um, your encouragement to the church right now. As things seem to be fraying, we could um, have a lot of emotional responses to that, fearfulness, desperation. We may end up fighting for the wrong things. And I think it's that right question to end on. How do we keep perspective? How do we understand what it is God is calling us to do? which is not unique to this time. Uh, But how? it's a big question. How do we respond to this culture and stay encouraged?
0: You know, Jim, I disagree with you in this regard. The church has been here before, but the church did not have social media. (laughs) Right. And so we're living in a brand new day. And my contention is we have to be willing to speak. We need to speak wisely. We need to speak lovingly. But at the same time, we cannot misuse the word love. You know, love can be evil. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love the wrong things, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of money. So what we need to do is to ask this question, which has been asked many times, how do we have truth and love together? And how do we link them in such a way that they are not enemies, but we need to march forward and we need to answer where is the line in the sand? Mm. Because there are some things in the culture that we can accept, there are other things that we cannot accept. And parents out there, I want to say to them that the cell phone in your teenager's hand will do more to inform his or her worldview than an hour of church and an hour of Sunday school. My point is that we need to fight this battle on multiple fronts and ask the question, what does faithfulness mean, and take the consequences. That's well said. I think it'd be right if I asked you to pray for us as a nation. Uh, Would you do that? Father, today we feel like Jehoshaphat who said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We want to pray for the mothers and the fathers, the teenagers, the couples, to everyone who has been listening today. Lord, we need your wisdom, and we do not by nature have courage. So birth in us all that we need for this hour to represent you well, that we might be faithful all the way to the finish line. And we pray, Father, for this culture, especially for our witness that we might be able to tell men and women that there is a Savior who invites them to come and says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We love him. We only wish that we loved him more. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.
1: Amen. Wow. I mean, I found that discussion with Dr. Lutzer to be very motivating, and I hope it'll help you to stand for truth in a culture that is upside down. When we speak the truth to people we care about, it's so important that we also listen to their stories and speak to them as equals because they're made in the image of God. And boy, that has come to my mind when I have engaged, particularly those in the LGBT community, to speak to them like a level playing field. And I think it's so easy for us to take on the imagery and the sound of the Pharisees when we project in those discussions a superiority rather than someone who has found the light, who has found the truth. It's a different posture. When you're not the creator of that truth, but you're an observer and an engager of that truth, and then you have empathy for other people. It's a big difference, but sometimes very subtle. My goal with Refocus is to inspire you to engage with people who God loves and cares about, regardless of their sin or their type of sin, even if they stand, especially if they stand in opposition to everything the Scripture teaches us. It's hard to imagine that God really loves them as much as he loves you, but it's true. Meet with them. Go get a cup of coffee. Take them a gift. Help them with a home project. Invite them to your church. Jesus spent time with people who didn't believe in him, and we can do that too, if he can do it. In the book of Luke, when the scribes and Pharisees complained about the company Jesus kept, Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of course, we're all sinners in need of God's grace. But some have never heard the good news. I had that story, man. I sat down with somebody, and they were from the abortion industry, and she thought her friends had told her I would put a voodoo hex on her. And she was like, is that true? I said I laughed. I said, no, we don't do voodoo hexes. I might pray for you. And I said, do you know much about Christianity? And she said, no, nothing at all, really. And I said, do you mind if I take 15, 20 minutes and just tell you what we believe? And she said, I would appreciate that. No one's ever done that. Isn't that amazing? It was very humble uh, on her part to say, yeah, tell me because nobody's ever talked to me. And again, that is the reason I wanted to have Dr. Lutzer on for his book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. Sometimes that means simply talking to people. As we help equip you on Refocus with important conversations like this one, I hope you'll support us financially. We're a nonprofit, and our purpose is to help you grow in your faith. With a gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of Dr. Erwin Lutzer's powerful book. Also, if you want more information about critical race theory, we have a free video series that will give more great content on that specific topic. It's called Empowering Your Family to Face Critical Race Theory. And we'll have that link for you in the show notes. Now for the inbox segment, here's a voicemail from Alex. Hey, Jim, I have a Christian friend who is starting to buy into things like CRT, critical race theory, and basically Just the idea that we shouldn't even talk about things that can be offensive to people. How can I respectfully show him that disagreement is actually okay and we can have a healthy dialogue about things like this? Well, Alex, I think the answer's in your question. I mean, that's right there. Just try to attempt to say, no, it's okay to have disagreement. No two human beings agree on everything. Just look at a married couple. <laughs> and, you know, God gives us the right to make our decisions. That's the amazing thing about God. So coming at it with that uh, lack of defensiveness, I think, is great. You know, rather than fight or anything like that, why why don't we just talk about it and try to hear each other's viewpoint That is a great way to start a conversation. Thanks for the question, Alex. And since I answered it here on the podcast, I'm going to send you a copy of my book, Refocus. If you have a question for me, please send me a voicemail by clicking on the link in the show notes. I can't wait to hear your feedback and questions about what you're experiencing in the culture. And thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us uh, reach more people by telling your friends. Also, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll have an inspiring conversation with Dr. Tony Evans. It'll help you to keep a kingdom perspective and live every day with eternity in mind. We call to be light of the world. In other words, they should be a visible, verbal presence of the kingdom of God in the midst of the culture of men so they can see what heaven looks like when heaven addresses whatever needs to be spoken into
0: in the culture.
1: That's coming up on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him walk like him. Disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.